Our scripture today comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1-10, and 1 Corinthians 16, 19-24. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. Amen. Thanks, Kim. Uh, Good morning. Welcome to summer. (laughs) Right? Uh, Good to see so many of you here this morning. I pray for those who are on on, uh, vacation or on the road, particularly uh, for Jonathan, our associate pastor, and... um, Mary Catherine Savant, and all the teenagers that went with them to Uganda at the beginning back on Saturday, okay? Uh, We are finally at the end of of a series of sermons that we've been doing this entire spring uh, from the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and we've been here in this book for almost six months now. So here at the very end, okay, we see Paul finally kind of brings to light the real problem. Paul's dealt with a number of problems throughout this letter, but here he begins to deal with the problem underneath all of the more surface problems. You could say this is now the address of the root problem that leads to all the other problems. Okay, And I'm going to make the case it's the root problem. Whatever the problem is in your life, whatever the problem is in your marriage, whatever the problem is with your you know, parenting of your children or in your friendships or your interpersonal, you know, the dynamics of your interpersonal relationships or in a church like this, The root problem underneath all of those other problems is the one that Paul begins to deal with here. Okay, so look at these verses and you'll see. What Paul is addressing is the fact that the Corinthian Christians don't know the gospel. Now, they they, they lack a practical, working knowledge of the gospel of God's grace in Jesus. That's the root of all the problems. So look at verse 1 again. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. That, that mean, what that phrase could be translated something like, I would have you know, brothers, the gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I would have you know it, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay? So the gospel is not just a message you believe and then move it, out, move, move it out to the side and move on to other things. That's what we learn here, what Paul's trying to tell us. Look again at how he puts it. He says, you receive the gospel, but then notice, you have to continue in it. You have to stand in it. And that word means 
to remain or to abide. In other words, the gospel is a power, spiritual power, that when it comes into your life, it has to become the pervasive influence over every part of your life. It becomes the grid through which you see everything or the basis of your personal ethics and relationships. You don't just believe the gospel. You have to continue in it. You have to stand in it. And that's what it means, according to Paul, to be saved. We believe the gospel. We stand in the gospel. We're saved by the gospel. Now, something of note, okay, for all of you nerds uh, like me, in Greek, there are a bunch of different voices that you can put a verb in. And here, the verb that's, that's significant here about our being saved uh, is, is in the middle voice. In other words, it's not an active verb. It's not a passive verb. This is really, really important. It's, it's these technicalities where you do a lot of theology sometimes. Uh, so the gospel, the, the, it's not active, it's not passive, which means the gospel is a spiritual power, but you have to use it. So if it was the active voice, see, the active voice would mean that we're the ones doing the action, that we are the ones carrying these out, things out, right? If it were the passive voice, it would mean that, uh, we're, that we're being acted upon, but we're not really doing anything. But the middle voice is intentional there, and it means that the gospel is the power um, but it, we must let it, or we have to allow it to do its work in our lives. We have to use it. We have to apply it. We have to draw out its implications and be, and be a part of the process of the gospel beginning to um, flood itself out into all the different parts of our lives. That's what it means to know the gospel. Paul says, I would have you know it. The Corinthians didn't know it. Now, of course, they knew all about Jesus' death and his resurrection and all these things, but then they would go off and they would live the way they live uh, that, that, in a way that was con- completely contradictory to the truth that they declared to be true in the gospel. They, they knew it, but they didn't know. It wasn't a living reality in their hearts. They had forgotten. They had lost their grip on the gospel, and that was, according to Paul, the root of all the problems that he'd been dealing with all throughout uh, this letter. So Paul here at the end says, verse 1, I would remind you, of the gospel. And that's what I would like to do this morning too, uh, for you. Now, the story is told that the leaders in Martin Luther's church once asked him, why do you preach the gospel every week? I'm getting kind of tired of that. His answer was, because you come in every Sunday looking like a people who've forgotten it. See, Luther says, I preach the gospel to you, and then you go away and you forget it. So I have to remind you the next week when you come, every Sunday, until maybe one day, you won't go out and forget it. And so that's what I want to do this morning. That's my goal. And we're going to look at this text. There are the four headings uh, of, that, are, that are listed for you in your outline there. The, gospel, the content of the gospel. Uh, what it means to remember the gospel. How the gospel can form and shape your self-understanding and your identity. And then lastly, and this is really what Paul's been working towards all throughout this letter. How the gospel creates community. So those are the four points. Gospel content. Gospel remembrance. Gospel identity. Gospel community. Let's begin and work through this together. Okay, first, gospel content. What is the gospel? What do we mean by that word? And here's, here's the way I want to say this to you, and this is not new. It's something many of you probably have heard before, but the gospel is news. It's not instruction. The gospel, the word literally means good news. It is news, not instruction, okay? So the gospel is news about what God has done in Jesus Christ to rescue us. It's not instruction. Instruction or advice is about what we should or shouldn't do, but the gospel is not instruction. It's not a way of life. It's not about what we do. It's the good news 
about what God has done for us that we have to respond to. It is news, not instruction. Okay? And if the gospel is good news, then that means that there must first be bad news. And it's the old, the old adage, right? I got good news and bad news. Which do you want first? What, what do people typically pick? The bad news, right? And why do you want the bad news first? The re- typically, the reason you want the bad news first is because once you get the bad news, it makes the good news that much better. Right? And so the bad news comes first, which makes the good news even sweeter, okay? And if the gospel is not good news in your heart, if it's not a source of real, abiding, pervasive joy and wonder to you, uh, if the good news isn't, then it's because that you don't, you don't know the bad news. So the bad news. And here's the bad news. According to the scriptures, God has made us. We owe him every breath. We owe him our allegiance and loyalty and obedience because he's our king and our owner and our creator. But instead of submitting to him and loving him, we have risen up against him in rebellion and we've lost and we've been exiled as as his enemies. That's the story. That's the gospel story uh, to, to encapsulate the bad news. That's what the Bible means when it talks about sin. Is the human human heart in rebellion against its creator rising up to overthrow him and losing and then being cast out as uh, his enemy. Now, I want to give you an illustration uh, from a book I'm reading. And I, it's not, don't, I know what you're thinking. You know, I'm, it's a self-imposed um, ban on anything cool or brilliant uh, like the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or anything like that. So we'll just go with the classics. Okay, how about that? And in Pilgrim's Progress... Uh, which I'm reading again uh, this month. Christian, who is the... If you've never read John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, you should. It's a a classic. Uh, But when you meet Christian, who's the character that you follow throughout the story, at the very beginning of the book, he's described this way, and it's very deliberate. He's reading a book, he's dressed in rags, and he's carrying a heavy burden on his back. Now, Bunyan's doing theology. It's very deliberate. Okay, and the book Christian is reading is the law. The law, see, the gospel's good news. The law is instruction. The law says, do this, obey these rules, follow these rituals, perform these ceremonies, do all of these things, and you'll be saved. So Christian's reading the law, and it says, do this, do this, do this, do this, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and he just begins to be undone because he knows that he's not perfect, and he knows he never will be. Now, we're told he's dressed in rags, And, and if you are familiar with the prophets in the scripture, you know that the prophets often talked about the righteous deeds that we are so prone to be very proud of that people do as being nothing more than filthy rags. And so here is this man who has caught a glimpse of the holiness of God and his, uh, the, the, the substantial obedience that he owes to this holy God, and yet here he is dressed in rags of human righteousness that could never pass the eye inspection of the blazing, hot, holy eyes of God in heaven. And so he's just undone. There's a burden. He's carrying a burden, the burden of his sin, his conscience weighted down by sin around on his back. It's a picture of the person who has risen up in rebellion against God, realize that they've lost, they've been exiled, and that they have no hope. No hope in themselves of ever overcoming all the obstacles that are theirs to meet. Uh, in order to um, be once again reconciled to God. Now, that's the bad news. Okay, the bad news is 
We need a righteousness. We don't have one. We can't provide one. We need, we need salvation. We can't affect salvation for ourselves. We need someone else to come and do it for us. And so if that's the bad news, then the good news of the gospel is that God has done for us in Jesus Christ what we could never do for ourselves. Okay? And now Paul gets into the content. Look what he does in verses 3 and following. He says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and on and on and on. This is Paul's basic gospel message, that in Christ Jesus, God has dealt with our sins. Jesus died the death that we should have died because of our sins. The prophet Isaiah said it this way, he took upon himself our iniquities and bore the punishment that now brings us peace. Okay? What that means is now God does not treat us as our sins deserve nor repay us according to our iniquities. We're no longer dressed in rags if your faith is in Jesus. Your rags have been replaced with the brilliant, white, glorious robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right? God has dealt with our sins, but not only that, we're told that he has dealt with the brokenness our sin has caused because Paul goes on to say Christ was buried, raised on the third day, and in his resurrection, Jesus has begun the work of making all things new. Even so, come Lord Jesus, right? And so this is the gospel. This is Paul's gospel content, okay? We cannot save ourselves. There's no good work, no moral virtue, no spiritual success that can merit us salvation Salvation is by grace. It's God's working for us, not our working for him. And this is what Paul says here at the end of the letter, verse 1. He says, I would, have, I would remind you, I would have you believe, brothers, I would remind you of the gospel. Now think about that for a minute. Let's move on to the second point. Now, why would Paul say that? I mean, these are Christians he's writing to. Of course they know all about Jesus' death and resurrection. And here's where what Paul's doing is just so brilliant and so helpful. Okay, Paul planted this church in Corinth. Uh, he was the one who preached the gospel to them. Okay, verse 1. They received it. Verse 1. But then, see, he knows something that you, don't, that you and I don't know and that they don't know. He knows, Paul knows, that even though he preached the gospel, they received it, that the sinful human heart has such a strong allergy to grace that we are continually and constantly, <clears throat> excuse me, in danger of losing our grip on this amazing message of, of grace in the gospel and sliding back into law and moralism, even inside the Christian construct, that we might hear the gospel, receive it, but then something happens and we don't continue in it. We don't, we don't, um, we don't stand in it. We lose it or we forget it. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that in Paul's letter to the Galatians, this is what has happened in the Galatian church. Paul preached the gospel of grace to the Galatians, and then another group of people came in and they said, you know, that stuff Paul preached, yeah, that's not really the truth. You know, it's believe in Jesus, but then here, you got to do all these other things too. And Paul has to write to them and he says, I, brothers, I can't, I, I can't believe that you so quickly have turned away from the gospel of grace that I gave to you and turned back into law keeping and rule keeping to try to earn your salvation. So see, the same thing that's happening there in Galatians is happening here in Corinthians also. And Paul says, you've forgotten all the problems, all the things we've been dealing with. If you dig down deep enough into those things, the issue is, is you've forgotten the reality of the gospel. Uh, back to the Pilgrim's Progress. <clears throat> Very shortly, 
after Christian sets off on his journey, he meets a man, a character named Worldly Wise Man, who tells him about the village morality. And in this village morality lives a gentleman by the name of Legality and his son, Civility, who can help him with the heavy burden on his back. Now listen to the words of the worldly wise man. Here's what he says. Now, he, speaking of legality, in the village morality, right? It's almost like a rap song. Ethan, make a rap out of that. Where's Ethan? Right? Now, he is a very judicious man of the highest reputation, and as such, he is well able to assist men with the removal of burdens from their shoulders, such as you have. There you can be relieved of your burden. There you will be also find suitable, empty houses available that are reasonably priced. Living standards and food, while being expensive, are of a very high quality. Added to this enjoyable environment, added to this enjoyable environment would be the company of honest neighbors who maintain financial security and an attractive lifestyle. And so Christian is very uh, curious about this, and he decides to go there and find help. And what Bunyan's saying, what Bunyan's warning about is he sa- he's saying you can be a nice moral, respectable, quote-unquote, Christian person who's well thought of in the community and lives in a nice neighborhood, stands for family values, has an affluent lifestyle. You can surround yourself with other nice people who share the same values, whose kids are well-behaved and mannerly and self-motivated. You can do all of that, and you can think that that's Christianity. A southern, genteel lifestyle where everybody's nice and stable and clean. That's what the worldly wise man tempts Christian with. Become that, he says. In other words, get rid of your burden, this heavy burden of the weight of sin you're carrying around your back. Get rid of that burden by becoming a good person, a nice person, a decent, sweet, good citizen. And Bunyan understands the spiritual danger of that vision of life, and he wants us to, too, the allure of moralism and civility to mistake a nice comfortable, moral lifestyle with Christianity, but being nice or moral doesn't make you a Christian. That's salvation by niceness. And there are millions of people in the Bible Belt that are going to, that are going to meet the judge on the day of judgment and say, look at my niceness. And he's going to say, I don't know you. So this turning aside to morality, right? Going back into law-keeping that the Galatians were doing, that the Corinthians were doing, that Christian does here in the story that, that Bunyan's telling, this, this, that it's, a, it's, a, um, sorry, it's, it's, a, it's a great spiritual danger because it's a turning away from the grace of God in Jesus. And so as Christian approaches the village morality, he's met by evangelist again, and evangelist says to him, what are you doing here? Why have you turned aside? And here's what he says. He says, don't you know your being here puts you in danger of hell? Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Don't turn away. Don't stop using it, Paul says. Don't go back into law-keeping and moralism. That's what the Corinthians had done. It's the cause of all the problems in the church. And so we arrive at a principle that I want to just tell you, you know, offer and then unpack just very briefly. And the principle is this. That the sin underneath every other sin, okay, the sin that accounts for every other sin, underneath every other sin, is gospel forgetfulness. And that means, conversely, that the power for obedience is gospel remembrance. The sin underneath every sin is gospel forgetfulness. Therefore, the power for obedience is gospel remembrance. Let's think about 
what we've already learned in this letter to the Corinthians for just a minute together to, to illustrate this a little bit. Do you remember a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, we talked about in chapters 8 through 10 where Paul begins to, to, to describe the Corinthians as they've divided themselves up into the strong and the weak. And so there were the, the strong people in the church and then there were the weak people. And the issue was whether a Christian should eat food that had been sacrificed to idols or not. And there were some who said, ah, yeah, it's no big deal. And there were others who said, no, 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 that's a really big deal. You shouldn't do that. And then each side became entrenched in their position and they judged and they looked down and they began to disdain people who disagreed with them, okay? The way we might, uh, for example, in some corners of the church, not this one probably, but in some corners of the church, you know, where, where the issue of alcohol, whether you should drink alcohol or not, and then people will start to really judge one another about that, or, or the way we would, whether you homeschool or private school or public school your child. And if you don't agree with my way of doing that, then I kind of am suspicious of you or maybe disdainful. And here's what I'm going to say. It's not a sin to disagree about issues like this. It's probably actually a good thing. It's not a sin to do that. It's not a, not a sin to disagree, but it is a sin to feel superior and to judge and to condemn and then to, then to disdain people who disagree with you. And if you do that, if you, can't, if you just can't stand people on the other side of the aisle of, of an issue that you're passionate about, then what Paul would say to you is, you've forgotten the gospel. You, you, this feeling of superiority. I mean, where does that come from? It comes from an evaluation of people based upon their performance or their positions, which is really, it really is a works righteousness system. So there's a right and the wrong, right? There's a right and there's a wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. And what's missing? Grace. What's missing is the reality that God doesn't love you and I because we're right. We were wrong, and he came to us, and he loved us in our wrongness. And the gospel destroys all pride and boasting because it says we're sinners and God loves us. We're all sinners. We're all wrong. We're all moral failures. And Jonathan Edwards uh, said that when we boast in our accomplishments and look down on other people, it's like one worm being a little exalted above another worm because he has a little more dust or a slightly bigger dunghill. This is ridiculous. This pride, haughtiness, judging and disdaining people who are different from you. The sin underneath all of those sins is unbelief. It's gospel forgetfulness. And so the gospel, see, so how you use the gospel then, you begin to remind yourself of the gospel truth, and what it does is it begins to destroy all pride, all boasting. But you can't, you can't know the gospel and live with a superiority complex. If you, do, if you have a superiority complex, you may claim to know it, but you know it, but you don't know it. Okay, but you can't live... You can't live in an inferiority complex and know the gospel either. The gospel destroys all pride and haughtiness and boasting. It also destroys all self-loathing and self-pity too. And you remember um, the, the, the issue over spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14, that there were some people in the church who were so enamored by the public gifts that certain members of the church had, and they were impressed with them. They began to think of themselves, I'm a nobody. You know, I've got nothing to offer. And then they, what they did was is they, they refused to give their gifts to the church because they really thought they were pretty insignificant. And again, it's not a sin to be shy or introverted or to prefer the background to the spotlight. However, it is a sin to live selfishly and to be aloof in order to protect yourself from getting hurt or being inconvenienced or to be full of envy towards other people. So where does the feeling of the, inf- the inferiority complex come from? See, those with lesser gifts looked at the more public people with more public gifts, and they said, well, man, they're important because 
of their gifts, and we're not. But see, that's salvation by talent. You're talented, I'm not. Therefore, you're a spiritual somebody, and I'm a spiritual nobody. What makes somebody a spiritual somebody? Talent? No. Salvation is by grace, not by talent. So an inferiority complex is gospel forgetfulness. So what the gospel does is it completely destroys uh, this whole inferiority-superiority thing that we've been dealing with all throughout this book uh, and just lays that to waste, okay, through gospel remembrance. And that's why what we've said over and over again in this church is we've got one thing, and that's the gospel, and we've got one job, and that's to remember it, (laughs) It's why we have a gospel class. Uh, people who are new to our church, a lot of times, Christians particularly who've been in churches for a long time, will say, why, why, I've been a Christian for a long time. Why do I need to come to a class about the gospel? The implication, what's the implication? I've moved on past that. You got something on the five points of Calvinism? Or something that's like meaty? And the implication is the gospel is for unbelievers, not believers, that you become a Christian by believing the gospel, but you eventually move on. Paul says, no. No, not really. You become a Christian by believing the gospel. You grow as a Christian by believing it more deeply. Because the sin underneath every sin is gospel forgiveness, and that means the, the power and the motivation for obedience is gospel remembrance. But there's a third thing, and I need to hurry to the end. A third thing we see in this passage is that using the gospel then and standing in it, continuing in it, begins to form a unique and, and beautiful and healthy kind of person then. And this is, look at this really just for a minute, okay? Let's just look. Down in verses 8, 9 and 10, Paul begins to describe, so if you use it, what's it look like? And Paul begins to describe how uh, this gospel that he preached to the Corinthians has shaped the way he views himself, okay? And what's fascinating, you'll see, is Paul doesn't suffer from high self-esteem, but he doesn't, he, he doesn't see himself as superior to other people, but he doesn't suffer from low self-esteem either. He doesn't have an inferiority complex either. He doesn't beat himself up, okay? He, he somehow is finding the middle ground between these two things. So look how he puts it, because it's absolutely unique. Uh, verses 7 through 10, Paul says, He, Jesus, appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to Me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, all that language, without getting into all the details, points to a profound humility in Paul. He says, of all the apostles, I'm the least. I'm the the last. I'm the least qualified because before I was a leader in the church, I was a persecutor of the church. So Paul doesn't wear... The badge of his, his apostleship, he doesn't wear it as a badge of honor. He says, there's only one explanation. There's only one thing that can explain my life being what it is, and that's the grace of God. I can't take credit for anything, right? I was a persecutor of the church. I was a self-righteous, angry man, a bigot full of hatred and violence. And then Jesus came to me. He sought me. I didn't seek him. He loved me even when I was his enemy, and he came to me, and he rescued me. And whatever I am today, I am because of him. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Not my hard work, Paul says, not my talents, not my gifts, not my wisdom, not my strength. What defines how I think about myself is not my work for God as an apostle, but God's work for me in Jesus Christ. Not my work as a mother, not my work as a teacher, 
not my work as a lawyer, not my work as a businessman, but his work for me. So on the one hand, you see, Paul has a profound humility. So the power of the gospel in your life, as you stand in it and as it works on you to save you, produces a humility that's void of all boasting and bragging and self-righteousness and the need to feel like you're better than other people. It produces humility. But, not just humility. Because look what Paul goes, goes on to say. At the same time, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So now this, this is just marvelous, okay? I really just, I just marveled at, the, at this this week as I was looking at it. See, on the one hand, Paul's very humble and self-effacing, but his humility doesn't become self-pity. His humility doesn't become an inferiority complex. He compliments himself. Isn't that great? He says, I'm the least of the apostles. So that doesn't mean I'm a nobody. Heck no. I've worked harder than any of those guys. I've accomplished more than any of them. Haven't he's right. He's going all over the world planting churches and seeing people converted. Thousands of people coming to faith and the rest of the apostles are still huddled up in Jerusalem. Paul, Paul says he compliments himself. He says, but it, right, but he's not boasting. He's not bragging. He's saying this is, this is the truth. Here's, look, my life, this is what's happened. But it's not a boast, it's not a brag. And this is where we just go right off the page of what is normal to our experience. We don't meet people like this very often. It's an incredibly honest statement. Paul's not afraid to call the good he has done good. One of the things that irks me more than anything else in my entire life, because I am, I am um, Mr. Fix-It challenged. I, I do not... If you, you know, we, if we build a swing set for my kids, I have nothing to do with it because I don't want anybody to get hurt on it once it's put together. And so I just marvel and I admire men who have, just have the ability to just, be, you know, throw, like throw a bunch of junk in the yard and they'll build something beautiful and it'll be sturdy and amazing, right? And I, I, so I have friends like this and I'll go to them and I'll say, that was amazing what you did. Well, I didn't really do anything. It just kind of, you know, poof. And there it was. It's like, that's not humility. That's false humility. Because it's not honest. And it's not what Paul does here. Paul, Paul says, I've done pretty well. But he's not puffed up. He's not taking credit for anything. Look what he says. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. It was not empty or without effect. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them. But look here. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He says, I've worked hard. I've seen lots of success. It's true. But I can't take credit for any of it. It's God working in me that has done these things. He's the one that deserves the credit. So again, Paul doesn't look at his work for God and say, man, I've done well, and then become puffed up. He doesn't look at his work and say, you know, I've not really done very much, and become full of regret. See, Paul, unlike you and I, Paul doesn't soar into self-righteousness. He doesn't sink into self-loathing and despair either because his identity isn't tied to his work at all. It isn't in any way tied to his performance. What Paul thinks of himself isn't connected to his work for God, but God's work for him. God's love toward him in Christ Jesus. So, the power of the gospel in your life, when it comes into the middle of your life, and you're standing in it, and it's working on you to save you, see, you won't look at your work and say, well, I've done pretty good, and feel good about yourself, and develop a soar into self-righteousness and superiority complex. Right? But you won't look at your work, and you won't say, you know, oh, I've done terrible and feel bad about yourself and sink into despair and self-loathing either. How you feel about yourself won't be connected to your performance at all. And when that happens, 
you'll finally become a person who's absolutely humble, yet absolutely honest, completely aware of your sins and failures, and yet possessing incredible poise and confidence at the same time now. What would a community of people who look like that, what would a community of people like that look like? See, the entire letter has really been Paul's attempt to answer that question, so let me try to answer it as I close. It would be a community where boasting and envy and competition with one another are completely absent, where people are so humble, that is, so self-forgetful and so kind, in other words, so others-centered, that impatience and rudeness would be banished, where people were secure enough to speak the truth and to receive the truth from one another without getting easily offended or put off. Now, does that sound familiar? It should. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. It's a description of a community of people that has received the gospel, not religion, not moving back into moralism, stayed stayed in, continued in, continued remembering the truth of the gospel of grace and by the power of that gospel being transformed into the image of Jesus. It's what Paul, Paul's laboring for in his letter. It's what he wants for the Corinthians. It's what God wants for us as well, that we would be a community of love and reconciliation and peace in a lost and broken world. And all of, our, all of the whole letter can really be summed up in this last phrase, this last simple command Paul gives to them in verse 20 of chapter 16 where he says to the church, I leave you with this, greet one another with a holy kiss. Right, it was a greeting the way some European peoples would greet by doing the whole thing on the cheeks or whatever they do, you know. Right, and in many ways, we don't do this anymore. Americans are very uh, standoffish, right, that freaks us out. Like, back away, you know, personal space. All that stuff. But Paul's saying, what basically Paul's saying is, despite your differences, despite your struggles, despite all the ways you get crossways and see things differently from one another, embrace one another. Kiss. Is that, you can't, you know, kiss is a warmth and affection and joy in one another. And so every week we say, as we've been reconciled to the Father, we've been reconciled to one another, and then we greet, which is, in many ways, for 2,000 years, the church has been practicing this practice of the holy kiss. Now, don't go kissing one another, because that could cause trouble. But can we be? Can we be a church so motivated and so driven by and so formed by the reality of the gospel of grace that even where we're different, even where we disagree, even where we may be tempted to unforgiveness and anger towards one another, uh, that because of the truth of God's love for us, that we could embrace one another with a holy kiss. Uh, That's what God intends us to be. And so let's pray that he would send his spirit to help us with that. Can we pray? Holy Father, we uh, truly revel in the good news of the work that you have done uh, through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf, that we have no claim on your salvation, uh, that you did not look down on us and say, man, there's they're, they're pretty good people down there. I need to do something about this. But you look down at, in our sin and misery upon us, uh, and you uh, still came. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Where we had no claim on anything from him, he came 
just in sheer grace to rescue and to deliver us from our sin. And so we say thank you. Uh, But we know we are just like the Corinthians prone to, uh, once we have started out in grace, to leave it behind, to lose hold of our grasp on it and to see it slide between our fingers and to move back to what is familiar to us, and that is trying to make a name for ourselves by being a good person or being a talented person or being a smart person or by being a successful person. And so we pray that you would, by the Spirit, keep us from stumbling away from grace and back into law-keeping. Would you um, help us to stand in the gospel that we might be people like Paul describes so that we might be a community like Paul uh, describes in this letter and in our love and affection for one another that we might um, display uh, to, the, to the city that you've called us to, the love of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that has existed from before all time. May our love for one another be an apologetic to a lost world of the love that you have for the world and, and, and the love that sent by which you sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. Uh, so make us evangelists in the way we love one another that you might bear fruit in us that would glorify you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So go and stand in this promise uh, that Jesus sends us out as his people, uh, but he promises to go with us and to be for us, even to the end of the ages. Now that is the promise that we receive. That's why you hold your hands out like this. We receive it, uh, but it's also the promise that we go, that we might stand in it as well, that through it we might be saved. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.